Well, here's an invitation from the risen Lord Jesus that you all know well, and I imagine you've all spoken from a number of times. Uh, It's uh, a verse from Matthew where he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. I don't know about you, but I absolutely love that invitation. J.C. Ryle has written a very fine evangelistic tract on that verse, and uh, you may have read it. If you haven't, it's certainly worth tracking down online, and you can easily do that. What is there to love about that invitation? I love the fact that it's so simple. Come, says Jesus. I, I love the fact that the invitation from the Lord Jesus is so directly personal. Come to me, says Jesus. I love the fact that the invitation is universal. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, he says. And I love the fact that his invitation is so realistic. He knows of the weariness of life without him, and he knows of the burdens that all form of religion impose. And I love the fact that at the heart of the invitation is a promise, I'll give you rest, says Jesus. As I mentioned just now, my wife and I have been serving the little church for uh, 18 years, where for the previous century, as far as I can tell, there has been no preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. But before that... We like to think that William Wilberforce came to the church when he was a little boy. And uh, he certainly stayed in a family, with a family who lived not far, who were part of the congregation at that time. And I think the gospel was preached then. There's some evidence on some of the memorials that the gospel was preached in those days. But I chose that verse when we came to the church, uh, by the grace of God, as the verse on which to build a fresh start for the ministry. And year by year, over the years, we have been praying, asking the Lord to build that particular verse into our spiritual DNA, if you like. To make us as individuals and as a a church family, glad to come freshly Sunday by Sunday to the Lord Jesus, with all that makes us weary and uh, gives us burdens to carry. To give us hearts that are increasingly devoted to that Lord Jesus, Devotion to Jesus, what I'm always looking for in somebody who comes freshly. And to make us glad to, find, uh, to help others find their way to him in whatever way we need to, but blackmail is not, not on the agenda normally. <laughs> and as I said earlier, he's been graciously answering our prayers. But what I know as a minister more than ever is the, as the years go by is my own need to come to him. I know my own capacity to stray from him. I know my own weariness when I try and do it without him. I know that I need to lay my burdens on his shoulders step by step as as the time goes by. I know that I need to rest in him. And I guess you do too. And so my first aim, my main aim in these three sessions together, and that's the invitation that's the top of the outline I've given you, is to encourage you to come freshly to the Lord Jesus as we gather like this and to come to him for yourself, with, if you like, nobody else in mind. Because I guess that some of you are weary. I have great respect for the ministry that God has entrusted to you, but it is lonely and it is burdensome at times. Burdens that others impose upon you, There are expectations of you when you come in as the one who's finally going to bring everyone to Christ as soon as you start to speak. And that's a big deal to carry with you again and again and again in setting after setting. 
And then, then you know, there are your own burdens that you create, because you're wayward and sinners just the way that I am. So, will you pray with me that as we turn to Psalm 22 over the course of these three sessions together, we can focus deliberately by God's grace on the Lord Jesus. We can delight in him for ourselves in ways that may move us deeply. We can renew our own devotion to him for what he has done for us and who he is for us, as well as sharing with him our suffering and our sorrows, which are routine, aren't they, in his service? Well, they're not routine to us, but they go with the territory. We know that. And so the invitation is to come and come again and come day by day and come according to our need to the Lord Jesus. And that's where I want to start. My second purpose for these three sessions together is for us to feast and to feast as friends and to feast on the spiritual banquet that Psalm 22 provides. And if I may, I'd like to give you a steak knife so that you can feast for yourselves on this particular psalm and from any passage anywhere you choose in the scriptures. I, I should say we're not really a vegetarian church. <laughs> uh, if, 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 if you are a vegetarian, I have great respect for you. I want to honour you. But uh, I do want to tell you a story about a hog roast in our church. We had a, we had a, a hog roast to honour the Queen and we brought the pig complete into the uh, church building. Whole pig, you know, from head to tail, everything in between. And the fellow who does the hog roast knows us pretty well. And so everyone was queuing around the church. He feeds 200 of us in an hour, so he's doing well. And because the way through, somebody said to him, it's the vegetarian option. <laughs> well, Doug looked at me and he looked at her. And he said, oh yeah, there is. And he said, oh, what is it? And he looked at me again for permission to do this. And I just uh, looked at him and he said, go home. <laughs> We, we are an evangelistic church, I should say that. We do <laughs> preach the gospel. And I'm sure there are some converted vegetarians among us. I mentioned that uh, we have uh, five children, 24 down to 16 now, two of them married. And one of them set up for us a WhatsApp group on, uh, on our phones, and they call it the Tribe of Dukes. And the children send each other pictures and messages from wherever they happen to be. And our eldest son and his wife at the moment are in South Africa. And he keeps posting pictures of meat. So a 500 gram steak that he is about to eat, or a whole rack of ribs appears. And he's in protein paradise for the next uh, few days as he's there. We could say he's feasting among friends. And that's what I trust that we can do together for these few days. You already feed yourselves. You need to because there's so many other mouths that you need to feed. And the Lord graciously gives you food when you wonder where on earth it's going to come from, so that again you can feed others who have come together to hear from you. But over the years i found it helpful for myself to refresh the way that I approach the scriptures. And I want to offer you, if you like, a way of thinking about what we're doing as we come to the Bible that I hope you'll find useful. So as we go along, a bit in this first session... I want to show you some of the working and some of the steps that, uh, in a sense, we already take, and take, take routinely, but if we step back from them together, I'll mark out the stages uh, that we travel through as we travel from what David tells us to our own suffering and the suffering of those around us, and at the same time, 
focusing centrally and deliberately on the Lord Jesus. You know, when you learn to drive, you, when you're travelling from sort of second gear to fourth, you go sort of quite self-conscious as it up and right and up again if you're heading up through the gearbox. Later on, if you ask, someone asks you how do you, you don't even think about it, just do it. Well, I'm self-consciously, in a sense, slowing down what we already do together without thinking about it so that we can think about it and freshly feed and feast. So there are my aims for our time together. If I ask you what the overall shape of Psalm 22 is, and we haven't yet turned to it, we're going to, we all know that first line. My God, my... We'll come back to that. My God, my God. If you've not heard off the Bible Gateway site, uh, David Suchet reading the, uh, the... He really reads brilliantly. And it's a great tool if you're weary. Go there on Bible Gateway and just press the tab, listen, and uh, he reads wonderfully right across the scriptures. He reads slowly. He gives the text sort of time to breathe in ways sometimes when you're in a hurry personally, it's more difficult to do. So we know the opening line, but kind of what happens next? What's the overall deal? Again, personally, I find it helpful to imagine myself when I come to any new passage in scripture to think of a helicopter. I suppose I've kind of always wanted to go up in a helicopter. Nearest Kent, we used to have a, uh, a radio-controlled helicopter when I was a child. My father was a big kid, really, had one of those, but uh, he crashed it more often than he flew it. But if you imagine hovering over the text as a whole, looking at the shape of it before you get into the details, sometimes that's very helpful. So, for instance, I was watching something on the telly the other evening where they were trying to rescue a sick fisherman from a boat in a storm. It was really challenging for the guys in the helicopter. They had to lower a man down from the chopper onto the deck to haul up the injured man to get him to hospital. He'd had a heart attack in the middle of the Bering Sea. Now, the mast of the boat was easily the most dangerous part of the whole situation. The mast was swinging and could easily have killed the man on the line before he got down to rescue the man on the boat. And in the the end, the guys in the chopper had to give up and come back the following day, hoping the man on the boat would survive another night. Now, texts have a shape and an atmosphere. Sometimes a man in trouble at the heart of the scene, but other times it's the threat from the mast or the noise of the waves, the scale of the waves, the sound of the waves, that that makes it well worth staying in the air for a while before we come down to the detail of the scene. So I've set out on that outline just the shape of Psalm 22 for you. Those three sections with ten verses, each very conveniently beginning with the letter T, you'll see that there. A psalm that starts in torment, just on the front page, and ends in triumph. Well, the first question, sorry, if you haven't got the outlines, do just fold them in half. Let's do origami for a second. All right, here we go. So what you need is the number one on the front page, pictures on the inside, and text on the outside. We'll get to the text in the ends. So... The, on the front it says A of E conference for evangelists with a number one. That's where you need to be now. All right? On the front. Okay. So the outline and shape of the song that we're going to be studying begins in torment and ends in triumph. Take it from me for the moment. But we'll see that kind of shape. Well, if we're going from torment to triumph, we want to know how we're going to get there. What's going to happen that's going to turn torment into triumph. And if I ask you, where is the kind of centre of gravity of the song? What is the central moment of the song? What is the critical 
if you like, change of key in the song, we'll want to think about that together as we go along. Something's got to change if you start in torment and then in triumph. And we need to see together what that is. If I ask you to say what are the main features of the scene and what's the central message of the psalm, I wonder what you'd say. Now, why don't I read it to you and then why don't you have a go at saying to the person sitting next to you what you think is the key verse in the whole song. Could you do that? Is that all right? I read. As I read, you choose the key verse in the whole song. Happy to give it a go? No one's going to find out which verse you choose later. This is not a test, all right? I'm not trying to catch you out. In a sense, I'm asking you to sit in that helicopter and just survey the scene and pick out what you think at this stage, having not yet got to know it, in this setting, what's the deal? Off we go. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me, mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many strong bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions and save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honour him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering 
of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. It feels like we should sing at this point, doesn't it? But we won't. Instead, let's talk. All right. So why don't you talk to each other about what you think is the key verse in the song as a whole? I'll give you five minutes. Off you go. Okay, let's uh, come back together again. When someone says they're going to give you five minutes from the front, they never do, do they? They never give you as long as that, because they're always keen to press on. What I want to do is to introduce a tool that I have found helpful personally. And I talked about a steak knife earlier. And by that I mean, basically, a tool that will help you feast among friends. Feast for yourself and then feast with friends. And if you would, I want you to forget about meat for a moment and come with me to the theatre. I want to set, away, I set out a way of thinking about scripture and of reading scripture that I have found particularly helpful in more recent years. And I suppose I've been doing this for a few years. Here's where I'm coming from. I believe in the double authorship of scripture. So 2 Timothy 3.16 is in my Bible, and I believe it. I believe that all scripture is breathed out by God, and that all scripture expresses the mind of God. So I believe in the full inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. That's where I'm coming from. So my starting point on the basis of the authority of the Lord Jesus is that every passage of Scripture records the words of a man. Isaiah says, or Genesis says, and at the same time, simultaneously, without difference, every passage records the word of God. What Genesis says, God says. So as we come to our psalm, we're assuming with those convictions given to us, I think, by Jesus, is that what David says here is the word of God for us, his people, and for his world, as well as being David's word. But that then doesn't answer the question of how is Psalm 22 the word of God for us? How do we travel from what David said back then a thousand years before the birth of the Lord Jesus and what God says to us now? Do you see that? And so what I want to do is to start with a story, once upon a time. You recognise, oh, there was an Englishman, an Irishman and a duck, and you hope I'm going to tell you a story, but I'm not. So if we start with a story, what's helpful to recognise is that every part of Scripture is part of a story. And the Bible as a whole is a big story, you know that better than I do, that begins with a garden and ends with a city. You are all natural storytellers. The Old Testament is a big story. story of God's creation and God's rescue mission and God's kindness in bringing his people home. Then if I ask you a question like this, what's the story 
that makes sense of Psalm 22, then you're starting to think. Because every story is, we all know, all good stories have a beginning and a middle and an ending. What's the beginning of this story? Where's the middle of the story? How does the story end? I'm putting a story shape to it. I'm saying, what was going on that this song emerges out of the story, what's happening between David and God? Well, then we notice, as we come to it, that Psalm 22 begins with a flashback. And some stories start there, don't they? And the present agony of an individual believer is especially painful because of the earlier intimacy, the lifelong intimacy that he has previously known in his relationship with God. It used to be like this, but now it's not. So we want to ask Psalm 22 the kind of questions that we ask all stories, that all stories naturally answer, which is, uh, who are we, and where are we, and what's gone wrong, and who's going to fix it, and when will that be? All stories answer that question, whether they're war and peace or Humpty Dumpty. They, they all address those basic questions. And if we flick, as we did earlier, to the end of the psalm, we notice that the story is, is no longer a story about the suffering and triumph of a single individual. It is that, but it's become a story that involves all the nations of the world. Verse 27. It's a story that involves all kinds of people from the very top to the very bottom of the social ladder. Verse 29. It's a story that stretches out from one moment right out into the future as generation after generation must tell their children. Verse 30. So the story, if you like, has moved from being personal to becoming plural. And sooner or later, every story that makes it into scripture does that. Because the Bible has a storyteller. And every story has a storyteller. And if you think about this particular psalm, David is not, if you like, writing his journals. Some of you might write journals, which somebody after his death has found and then unfortunately published. But that's not where this psalm is coming from. David is self-consciously and deliberately writing for a, an audience. Why would he do that? When our children were little, I used to tell them stories about a donkey. And I told them donkey stories to make car journeys go quicker. And I told them donkey stories as a distraction if one had fallen over and got a hurty knee, and I sometimes just told donkey stories for fun. Now, every story has a particular audience in mind and a reason or several reasons for telling the story. So as we come to Psalm 22, we want to ask ourselves not only what's the story, but also, well, why would David tell the story? You could think of it like this. David puts his story on a stage. He doesn't, if you like, keep it at the back of the car. He doesn't, as it were, like, keep it in the family for the children. He puts his story on display for God's people to see and to hear. This is a key move. Do you see what he does? He, 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 if you like, sets his experience of God before the people of God for a reason. He, in his storytelling, includes his feelings about God. He includes his awareness of God's absence in the story, in a prayer book, in a songbook, for all God's people to read and to learn from. Well, why would he do that? And what is his intention? That's not a difficult question, even if we can't always be sure of the answer, but it is a right question, isn't it? Why is this storyteller telling this story for all God's people to see and to hear and to learn from? 
And again, you think about the way that works in, in God's plan. If David sets this story before God's people in his era, we can think about the kind of the impact of seeing and hearing this story was making in God's people for how long? Well, for a thousand years before the first Good Friday. It's roughly speaking when the dates work out. So what was the God what was the job that God was giving David's song to do in the life of God's people for a thousand years from when he first wrote like this? For a thousand years they read this and then Good Friday came along. Do you see that? We're going to get there, but we're not there yet. We're just seeing why does this story go onto the stage. And then naturally, as you read it and you were talking about it, you think, wow, look at Good Friday. We come to the Saviour. And we, we know that this story is telling us about the Saviour because Jesus says that ultimately every story looks forward to him, to his person and his work. So we want to come to Psalm 22 and ask Psalm 22 to tell us about the Lord Jesus and show us, if you like, the turmoil and the torment of Good Friday and the triumph of Easter Sunday. We'll do that together. And we know that all four Gospels go back and look at Psalm 22 and when they get there, they can hardly contain themselves. Look, they say, what happened back in the Psalm that happened precisely on Good Friday. And they do it repeatedly and they all do it. And so what we will do as we travel from David's agony towards our own experience of weariness and difficulty in ministry is we'll set the story on the stage and then we'll put the story on the stage beside the Saviour and we'll look from one to the other in our mind's eye. If we look forwards from the stage to the Saviour, we travel a thousand years from when that story was first put on stage to the Saviour, hanging and bleeding and dying and praying and trusting. But we can also look back, as the Gospel writers tell us that we need to do, and they did before us, and they remember Jesus there, and they look back to the psalm a thousand years earlier, and back on that stage a thousand years earlier, we can see some of the things the Gospels themselves don't tell us fully. In a sense, we can hear something of, and I tremble to put it like this, but the inside story of Good Friday. We can hear just a little of what it was like for the Lord Jesus to suffer and die for us. So do you see the stages, the, 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 the sort of elements in, in this uh, journey from the story that David tells to where we are now? We began with a story. We saw that every story that effectively makes into the Bible is put onto a stage. And every story has a reason, an audience in mind for the story. And setting that on stage helps us to remember a thousand years until Good Friday, we look at the Saviour, we look from the Saviour back to the stage, from the stage back to the Saviour. And that reminds us that all of Scripture is about Jesus before it's about us. It's about him first and then us. Him and not us. And then us because it's about him and it involves us. But him first. But then what about us? Well, coming from the saviour to us, I want to call us the sinners in the stalls, if I may. We're watching. 
And as we're watching, inevitably, we're responding to the emotional agony of that original story. We're seeing the shape of the story God's put on stage for us. We're seeing remarkable connections between a story a thousand years old before the good first Good Friday. And we hear God's voice speak to us in different ways, according to our need and our, our need to remember his love for us. Our need to remember that he does forgive, even us. Our need to be reassured about his trustworthiness, our our need to know that he is willing to answer when we pray, not just when other people pray. And the other three little pictures that I put on this outline for you, and you'll see I've just been taking you through these pictures on the inside of the outline on pages two and three. The mirror there, you know these three, but again, I think it's helpful to pick them out for us in our time together as we feast together as friends. The mirror is the picture that James, the brother of Jesus, uses for the scriptures, isn't it? You know that. We see ourselves and our need in every passage as we look carefully. Scripture shows us what's gone wrong in our own hearts and in our world, even in our ministry. And Psalm 22 is a powerful mirror, as we'll see. The Bible is like a pair of glasses also. I'm at the stage of life when I'm still pretending I don't really need glasses. I went to see an optician 18 years ago, and he said, come back in a year. And I went back last year, and he said, come back in two. But John Calvin pictures scripture as being like a pair of glasses. And my experience, not only I, but all sorts of people find this really helpful. We talk to people and minister with people who have a kind of fuzzy grasp on spiritual. They kind of know something's there. They wonder if someone's there, but they just don't quite see it plainly. And scripture functions, Psalm 22 functions like a pair of glasses that brings God's grace up close in sharp outline. It's helpful, I think, to remember that. And sometimes the language of seeing clearly is helpful. And it's not us as the minister or the evangelist who helps them see. It's scripture that does that job to help them see plainly. And then that last thing, I don't know if you can see what that last picture is, but it's a wedding invitation. And this is something that uh, I first heard Tim Keller explain, and it's very helpful. You don't need me to re- remind you where the Bible ends. There is a party, a wedding reception, a feast. And all the friends of Jesus are there, all the family of God is there, and we're the bride. How do you get invited? Well, you could think of the whole of Scripture, in a sense, as... God's wedding invitation to everyone who will come to Jesus and receive the invitation from him. If all we needed was John 3.16, that's all we'd have. But we need more than that. We actually need all of it. And all of it points in that direction to make sure that everyone who needs to hear is going to hear and get there. And, and therefore, any passage you go to, you could ask the question, how is this a way of inviting me to that wedding reception? How does this passage call me to know more intimately the love of God found in Jesus Christ? Every passage in the book does that in one way or another. So I left some blanks for you. You can see them there on the outline. And I put together the shape of the journey that I'm going to make with you from Psalm 22 to today. Bottom left-hand corner, the word story goes in that box. And I want to pay careful attention to the shape of the story in this particular psalm. Are you with me? On the inside page of the outline, bottom left-hand corner of the box with a cross between the four of them, story goes in the bottom left-hand box. We move up from there to the stage. 
top left-hand corner, stage, goes in that box. We travel across from the stage to the saviour. That's the word that goes in the top right-hand corner, top right-hand box. And the arrows move backwards and forwards in our mind's eye. From the story on the stage to the saviour, from the saviour back to the story on the stage. And we'll find we're feasting, we're full, we're absolutely topped up by seeing how remarkably Good Friday and the story on the stage speak to each other and to us. And then we come from there to the sinners in the stalls. So there'll be lots of S's there in that bottom right-hand corner, in that bottom right-hand box. Sinners, like us, you could say. But the sinners in the stalls. And the point of setting out the journey in that way is to make it clear that it's often unwise to take a shortcut. We've all been there. I don't know what walk you remember. I remember having to climb up a very dangerous cliff out of a bay in Wales to escape from the tide because I thought it, was going to, it wasn't quicker at all and it wasn't safer. And, it wasn't, and we've all of us done that. We've taken a shortcut. Now, as we gaze from the saviour and the stage, from the stage to the saviour and back, we'll find that actually slightly different aspects of this psalm reach us. Reach us individually. Reach us together, if you come here as a team from a particular ministry. Reach us in different ways at different times in our lives. Sometimes we're, we're so glad that here is good news of forgiveness because we're aware freshly of our un- unworthiness. Other times we're so delighted that this is news for everybody everywhere it doesn't seem to work like that where we go. And graciously, God gives us fresh capacity to grasp what's always been there. We've never seen before, you know that. Or fresh wonder at the Lord Jesus, because there's always more of him, even for those who spend their time talking of him. There's more of him to discover together. Well, let's feast together among friends. The slot after lunch is normally described as the graveyard slot, isn't it, in a conference like this? Thanks, Roger. Um, but, but, but I want to say to you, approaching Scripture in this way is hard work, but it's not rocket science. And every believer can do this without difficulty, and especially together. And so what I've tried to do as we start off, and I'm, then going to, I'm going to give you a chance in a moment just to talk to each other, is, 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 to, is to spell out what we're doing, Because actually we'll find if we do that together, we have more that we can feed on for ourselves and more that we can give to others. So it's your turn again, enough from me. I'm going to give you a question to talk about. I want you to to be clear about me again. I believe in penal substitution. I believe that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. But I want to persuade you, if I can, to slow down as we come to this particular psalm. We're going to get there, we are, before Thursday, I promise, but we're not there yet. So as we come to this particular song, will you spend a few moments now thinking about these questions? Well, there's one question. What's the story that makes sense of this particular song? You meet somebody who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's gone wrong? Will you tell each other a story that makes sense of the song and take five minutes and then I need to race after that. So five minutes, I don't mean that, three, off you go. Tell each other a story that makes sense of the song. Okay, let me get you back if I may. As the volume level rises, you're cooking on gas, so let's get you back. What I'm going to do now is 
run you through these verses, if I may. We're on the back page of my outline, the text of the psalm in front of you. You don't need to take notes if you don't want to. In fact, I'd encourage you just to listen and gaze on the Lord Jesus as we come to him looking at this particular text. If you like a heading for the text, I would describe it as complaining with confidence. Verses 1 to 11. Complaining with confidence. Look where he begins in verse 1. He says, my God, my God. And that's where he is at the end of verse 10. The last little phrase in verse 10, you have been my God. And even though in between he's complaining in agony, as we'll see in a moment, he's still speaking my God at the end of this particular, what we might describe as an outburst for understandable reasons. And I've tried to show the movement between, if you like, complaining and confidence with the italics. So if you look at the text, the bits in italics are what you might call black complaints in verses 1 and 2, and again in verses 6 to 8. There's a kind of confidence in verses 3 to 5 and 9 to 10, but as we'll see, even the verses where he expressed his confidence turn out to be part of the reason that he's complaining. All right? So look in verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's the bit that we all know. But even as he asks the question, you notice who is, who is listening. He hasn't given up on God. He's still saying, my God, my God. He's, if you like, hanging in there with God, but it feels very much to him as if God has given up on him. He's feeling God forsaken. And I want to say that Almost every believer you encounter feels like that sooner or later. Almost every minister in my experience, and I have no doubt by the time I've been among you for a few days, almost every evangelist sometimes feels as if God is far away without a good reason. Look at his feelings in the second line. He says, why are you, there's the language, why are you so far away? from saving me so far from the words of my groaning. He feels like there's a massive gulf between himself and God. It's as if God is sort of out of earshot, apparently incapable of hearing him groaning. We might say there's kind of no mobile phone signal, so he can't sort of get through. Again, we all know what that feels like. Look, in verse 2, it might be worse than that. Perhaps God is perfectly capable of hearing, but isn't willing to listen to him in particular. He says, oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I'm not silent. He feels as if God is, if you like, never available. As if God never returns any calls, however urgent they may be, whatever time of night they're being sent. Just no answer. And again, I know and you know what that feels like. You don't have to be a believer for long before these words are words that feel appropriate for the way in which you're finding your life or your ministry or your family. And you see, the singer's, track, the singer's suffering is made worse by the fact that he knows God's track record. Look in verses 3 to 5. God's people have always praised him. They've praised him for centuries for good reason. God kept his promise to them, and God always rescued them when they cried out to him, and that's the trouble. 
Look in verse 5. He says, they cried out to you and were saved. And the implication is, I cry out to you and nothing happened. Look look again in verse 5. In you they trusted and were not uh, let down. But he says, look, I've always trusted in you. And I'm beginning to think you have let me down. And it's easy enough, isn't it, to hear his disappointment. Uh, And sooner or later, every believer you meet who's been asking a friend and they haven't come and praying for a husband for decades and they haven't responded feels disappointed by God. Well, is this perhaps one of the reasons that this song, the story of this song, is put on a stage for all God's people to hear for a thousand years before we get to Good Friday? Here's a singer who's feeling abandoned by God and let down by God, disappointed in God, but it's not only his relationship with heaven that's in trouble, he's also having a lot of trouble, if you like, on the horizontal with those around him. Look in verses 6 to 8 at the suffering and rejection of the, sin, of the singer, the humiliation and the scorn and the mocking and the insults that he endures. Look at verse 6. That's not what he's feels about himself, necessarily. He's not saying, I'm a worm, and that's really how I feel. It's how he's being treated. His enemies treat him like the kind of worm that killed Job's, uh, Jonah's plant. That's the same language. It's the kind of worm that attacks grapes. In the book of Job, it's a, it's a maggot. It's that kind of worm. He says, this is how they treat me. This is how they talk of me. This is how they think of me. I'm that welcome. And you see in verse 8, his enemies know that he's a believer. He trusts in the Lord, they say. And they mock him for his faith. And they're determined to crush him. And they'll be glad to be rid of him, just as glad as you are to get rid of a maggot in your salad. Last year, throughout the year, on every day of the year, without exception, more than 20 Christians a day were killed somewhere in the world. Each of them squashed, crushed, like an unwelcome maggot. Imagine a prison chaplain at an execution somewhere in the US, gloating as they switch on the chair. It's this kind of hostility that he has been enduring. And he's playing back to God what he's been hearing. Everybody everywhere, every Tom, Dick, Harriet, how you put it, is saying that you abandoned me and they're delighted at the fact that you've abandoned me. How can that be right? Why have you forsaken me? And you see that the singer's suffering is made worse, still further, still more painful, by his own experience of God in earlier years. Look in verses 9 and 10. You see, he records what he himself knows of God's goodness. Look at the number of times that me and my and I and you turn up in these two verses. There's a beautiful intimacy here. He says, you brought me out of the womb. He says, you made me trust in you. Even at my mother's breast, from from birth, I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. You can hear the way he and God have known each other ever since he was less than a nipper. Verses 9 and 10 are intensely personal. I love this portrait of God. If I say to you, who is God in these verses? God was the midwife at his birth. God was the one who laid him at his mother's breast. His faith was breastfed into him. 
He's saying, look, it's been you and me, God, for longer than I can remember. So, so where are you? What happened? It's impossible, isn't it, to miss the sense of loss and betrayal, those beautiful memories of, of good times in all the earlier years that he's ever known, and now they're all gone. Now, do you see what we've been doing? We've just spent a few minutes listening carefully to the story as the singer tells God his story, as the singer pours out before God his agony, as he complains at God's absence and God's silence, as he contrasts God's willingness to answer other people's prayers in earlier years, looking back longingly and lovingly to his own experience of intimacy with God through all his years, all now gone. Now, if we put the story on the stage for a few moments, think with me about what David's story does among God's people and does for God's people in generation after generation for ten centuries. I sometimes tell the villagers where we live, the church has been here for a thousand years. I say to a wedding couple, for a thousand years, couples like you have stood here to listen to this. I want to give myself every chance to be heard. Well, what did David expect God's people to do with these words, individually and together? Are God's people going to read David's words and say to themselves, oh, you know, it was really hard being the king. We've no idea David felt like that. We're so glad we never feel anything like this. Poor fellow, we must... No, I don't think so. They're not going to distance themselves from him, are they, if they hear these words from him? They're going to be grateful that if he talks like this, well, they can talk like this too. And God's people in every generation have always known that sooner or later, every believer, sometimes a church family, sometimes a ministry, needs words like this when it's not working, the way it's kind of supposed to be working and the way it did work and does work for other people. And now look across, if you would, from the stage to the saviour. And move in your mind's eye from one to the other. Listen again to the Saviour as he takes those words of verse 1 on his lips. And as he asks that question in verse 1, God is still God, God is still good, but God has forsaken him. And the Lord Jesus, if we look back in the language of the psalm, has known an even deeper, longer-lasting intimacy with the Father than our singer ever knew. And that is now broken. I don't think it's fanciful to imagine the Lord Jesus meditating on these words as he hung, dying on the cross in our place, listening to the crowd and the criminals and the religious leaders calling out and mocking him, filled with scorn, delighting in his abandonment. He trusts in God, somebody shouts, oh, let him deliver him, somebody else says. And the Lord Jesus praying in silence to the Father, saying, Father, do you hear that? And verse 11 records the singer's first petition. Here's the first thing he asks. And look what's happening before we come on to what he's ask, he asks. Do you see what's near? Trouble is near. We'll come on to that tomorrow. And there's no one to help, he says. He's utterly alone and God seems far away and out of range and out of sight and out of touch. And so he cries out to God, do not be far from me. Please come, and please come, come quickly. 
To my mind, it's a powerful prayer, packed with emotion, full of pain, filled with suffering. Here's a singer strung out by the gap between his faith and his experience at this moment. And he he cries out because of the gap between the way that God is supposed to be and the way that God has always been and the fact that God is... Well, where is God? Nobody knows where he's gone. And nobody knows when he's coming back. And there are times, aren't there, where we as individuals think like this, as believers, as evangelists, we feel like this as ministers. And there are sometimes long, long periods when there's a truth about the ministry that we're in. And in my experience, most ministers and most, uh, most evangelists experience disappointment in their relationship with God, either personally or in their public ministry. We've read those biographies. It's right to read them. We want to go on going back to them. By the way, the formative year in Hudson Taylor's life was the year he spent in Hull on his way to China. At least we like to say that. (laughs) We've read those biographies. It's sometimes like that, a little bit for some of us. But it's not always like that. And we remember when we were younger and we prayed and God answered prayer instantly and immediately and gloriously and they were converted And it's not always like that now. And the relentless heartbreak of the parable of the sower, if I can put it like that, wears us down. The seed that falls on the path, that's fair enough, isn't it? We kind of all know that. They don't get it. We can move on from it. The seed that falls on the shallow soil, it's common enough. And there's a little reaction. We say, well, let's wait and see, shall we? I can introduce you to a fellow back home who five years running after every carol service said to me, you'll see me next year. And we never did. And in God's grace, his golf partner got sick. So nothing to do on Sunday. So he came to church, got converted. But it gets harder, doesn't it, not to grow cynical over the years towards the, the, the seed that falls among the thorns. That's the real heartbreaker. It is for the sort of, if you like, stay-at-home minister. I can think of a young family who began coming regularly on Sunday. They appear to be making genuine, genuine progress. He is a delight he feeds not just on sausage and our men's breakfast, but he loves scripture and he loves Jesus. He has an enormous tattoo of a cross made on his forearm to mark his conversion. We have a conversation about that, but uh, there it is, an enormous great tattoo saying he's become a Christian. I didn't suggest it, it was his idea. <laughs> and a few years later, the whole family has drifted away for no good reason, as the parables say that some will. There are times, aren't there, where Christian congregations and ministries find themselves crying out like this, the massive gap between our faith and our current experience. You go into churches to speak the gospel in settings where sometimes people are feeling that somehow, in spite of knowing the gospel, God has gone missing. And it's not happening. And it feels as if God is, we sang earlier, didn't we, but uh, it feels as if he's unobtainable, unavailable, Invisible, inscrutable, inactive, and silent. And apparently unmoved and indifferent to the suffering of his people. And we're not in a part of the world where we're getting killed yet, are we? At times like this, it seems to me, we can treasure the words, the, the, the fact that the words of our song were spoken by Jesus. If you like deep faith, and what could be deeper? is not incompatible with raging emotions. Believing prayer, and who, if you like, could be a bigger believer than the Lord Jesus himself. Faithful prayer can take the form of 
a passionate protest at God's absence. Real absence in the case of the Lord Jesus, apparent absence in our case, but real and painful nonetheless as far as we're concerned. And so faith in God can speak boldly and plainly to God about his apparent failure to answer prayer. And faith speaks openly to God in ways that sometimes sound messy before God. And when we find ourselves feeling the way this singer felt, we can be encouraged that Jesus himself experienced real God-forsakenness. And for him, the reality of being abandoned by God was not the end of the story. And for us, the sense of being abandoned by God doesn't need to be the end of the story either. And it's an experience, that sense of God-forsakenness, that we can talk to God about the way the singer does and the way that Jesus did. So you see, it seems to me, here are words, if you like, for measuring the love of the Lord Jesus for us. He went through this for us. Here are words, if you like, to calculate the price of our forgiveness. He was willing to be this for us. Here are words to fill us with thankfulness. And here are words to spell out what the Lord Jesus endured for us. That we can feast on, delight in, and from which we can feed others. Let's pray together. My God, my God. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for the precious words of the Lord Jesus as he gave himself for us. We thank you for the everlasting intimacy with the Father that he was willing to give up for us. We thank you for the abandonment that he was able to endure for us. We thank you for the love that took him there and the love that kept him there. And we thank you for these precious words, which in their own way are here for us whenever we need them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.